Several years ago, there was a Saturday Night Live sketch featuring Dana Carvey as an angel and John Larroquette as a man who had died and gone to heaven. And he's recalling that he had felt no fear or pain in death and he had been able to see his body as he drifted away from it and into heaven. And now he finds himself sitting at the gates of heaven getting to talk to an angel. And he realizes that he can ask this angel for the answers to the mysteries that he had in his life, the questions he always wondered about. And so we asked him questions like, who are the celebrities that are actually alive that everybody else thinks is dead? And who are the women who had crushes on me that I never knew about? And he was disappointed to hear that it was far less than he had expected. And finally, he asked the question, what's the biggest mistake I made in life? And the angel said, you mean besides leaving the church? Well, there was this one time that you were walking along the beach in Bermuda, and you didn't realize it, but you walked right over the location of a treasure chest. And if you had just dug down four to five inches, you would have found a buried treasure there worth $40 million. And his, this man says, oh, I can't believe I missed it. The angel says, no, no, it's okay. You don't need the money now. It's all right. So the man shakes his head, and then he says, well, what's the grossest thing I ever ate? And the angel starts shaking his head, no, no, you don't want to know that. And so the man says, okay, what's the 200th grossest thing I've ever eaten? And the angel said, well, there was this time that you were eating a bowl of butterscotch pudding, and it had a dead bug in it. And you never realized it because you were watching football at the time. Now, to be real honest, the sketch wasn't all that funny, but it left an impression on me because all these years later, from then till now, I find myself still wondering, what are the questions that I would ask? What are the things that I haven't known about my life, the, the hidden mysteries, the things that I've never seen? What's the biggest danger I've ever been in and just not realized it? What's the biggest mistake I've made? What's the grossest thing I've ever eaten and would I really want to know? Maybe the better question for me is, am I okay with not knowing some of these unseen mysteries before me? Am I willing to trust God to guide me along the path of life? Today we're continuing on with our sermon series, Wild Kingdom, celebrating God's creation. We're looking at different passages of scripture that highlight animals, and we're looking at the message behind them. What's the meaning for us today? What is it that we can take and apply to our lives? And this morning, we're looking at the very strange story of Balaam and his talking donkey. Now, Balaam was a prophet, a seer, and he is somebody that's hired by the king of Moab. The king of Moab wants Balaam to put a curse on the Israelites. And Balaam had heard from God that those were a blessed people, and so he knew he couldn't curse them. And yet he didn't want to upset the king, I'm sure for his financial and physical benefit. It was always beneficial to keep the king happy. And so at one point in the story, he rides out to meet the king and his people on the back of his donkey. 
and the donkey starts to act up. At one point, the donkey kind of veers off the road to go into this nearby field. And so Balaam has to goad it back to get on the road again. And at one point, the donkey kind of scrapes up against the walls of a canyon, trying to scrape Balaam off of his back. And, And again, Balaam's hitting the donkey to keep him on the right path. And finally, the the donkey just lies down there in the middle of the road and refuses to budge. And Balaam starts beating this poor animal when suddenly God opens up the mouth of the donkey and the eyes of Balaam. The donkey asks Balaam, why are you beating me? Have I not always been good to you? Haven't I always been obedient to you? Have you ever seen me act like this before? I've always been loyal to you. And all of a sudden, Balaam sees this angel in the middle of the road with a drawn sword to prevent him from passing. And he realizes that the donkey had saved his life. Now, if you go back earlier in the story and you look at the story through the eyes of Balaam, you can see that he was just going along with what was apparent to him. He couldn't see anything in the road. The path was clear. The only thing he saw was how the donkey was acting. And to be honest, it wasn't all that unusual for a donkey to kind of wander off the path for a field to graze, or a donkey to kind of rub up against the wall, or for a donkey to just stop in its tracks and not budge forward. All of these were in the realm of possibility for what a donkey could do, and Balaam could only see that, but his eyes deceived him. The donkey had saved his life because the donkey had always been for the good of Balaam. And Balaam had been focused on the ordinary when the extraordinary was standing right in front of him and he missed it. I think there are three important lessons that we can take from this passage as we look, how do we handle things that are unseen in our lives and how can we trust God in the midst of them? I think the first point is, it can be disconcerting to us when we face things that are unseen. Balaam was a real historical figure in life. In 1967, they were doing excavation work in a part of Jordan at Deir Allah, and they came across this site, and it was a sacred building, and on one of the walls, they found an inscription dating back to the 8th century BCE. And this inscription had been inscribed, had been taken from a religious text. And it was talking about the prophet Balaam, son of Beor. And it talked about his gifts and his skills and his prophecies. And some of the words it uses in this inscription are very similar, almost word for word, to what we find in the Old Testament. Now, this inscription and the text were not written by Israelites. They were from a polytheistic community But nevertheless, they were talking about Balaam, who himself was not Israelite. They were talking about him and his gifts. Balaam was a famous prophet, a fortune teller, and he was hired to interpret dreams, to help people plan out their future, to pronounce blessings or curses on people. And the irony in this story is this fortune teller who couldn't see his own future. This man who was 
hired to help people guide them along the path of life, and he couldn't see the danger right in front of him. Now, for Balaam, he felt that he was connected to God. Even though he himself was an Israelite, he uh, consulted the God Almighty and prayed to God, and God revealed to him what he was to do. And so Balaam felt very connected to God. He felt that his every step was in tune with God and how frustrating it must have been for him to realize that the donkey was better connected to the will of God than he was. Sometimes in life, we're going to not understand what is right before us. Or perhaps we'll plan far out ahead, we'll plan things in advance and not realize that there's a curve coming down the road. If we trust in God, we can navigate that, but it can still be unsettling for us. Several years ago, I was pastoring two churches in southeastern Oklahoma. And my husband Chris and I had several discussions about our future plans we felt that God was leading us to stay there at these two churches through May of 2007. That's when I was going to be ordained. And I wanted to celebrate that with these two churches because they had been such a part of my ordination journey. For the first three years of my ministry, I attended seminary, driving back and forth to Dallas to the Perkins School of Theology at SMU, and I wanted to stay an additional three years so that I could celebrate this accomplishment with these two churches. We love the churches. We love the people. We love the ministry there. Now, in the summer of 2005, I received two separate phone calls from senior pastors that I respected and I knew very well. And each one of them was asking me if I would come and be an associate pastor at their church. And it gave my husband and I an opportunity to consider something we had never considered before. And we talked about these two opportunities, and we really decided that we needed to remain where we were. And so uh, I felt very secure that I was supposed to stay in, my, uh, stay in that appointment. But we started talking about the role of an associate pastor, and the more we prayed and discussed it, uh, we really were firmly decided that I was not called to be an associate pastor. And so I called these two pastors back, and I said, thank you so much, but becoming an associate pastor really isn't a part of my future. The very next spring, the first day of spring break in 2006, I received a letter from my district superintendent, and he was outlining the new procedures and what happens when a pastor would move. Well, I would forward that to my husband, and I wrote in big letters, we're not moving I just wanted you to see the upcoming changes, and we'll need to know this next year. That was our plan. The very next day, I had taken off to be with the kids because it was spring break. Hannah went to be with some friends, and Brooks and I had the day all planned, and we had a pretty sweet afternoon routine. I would warm up a blanket in the dryer and get it nice and toasty warm and Then he and I would get under the blanket. He was only five at the time, and I would read a book to him. And to be honest, we would only make it about five minutes before we were both out cold and asleep under that nice warm blanket. Well, on that day, we were about four minutes into the book, getting a little sleepy when the phone rang. And I answered it, and the caller said, Hello, I'm Bob Long from St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. How are you? And I thought, 
how strange for Dr. Long to be calling me. I mean, I knew who he was. He has a wonderful reputation in our conference, but I didn't really know him. I'd only talked to him once. And then he goes on to ask me if I would come to Oklahoma City and meet with him and talk about becoming an associate pastor here at St. Luke's. Well, we made the appointment for the next day, and I was driving up, and I was really, really excited. Not because of becoming an associate pastor at St. Luke's. I knew we had discussed it at length before. I knew the answer to that was no. I was excited because I thought, I'm going to get a chance to talk ministry with Dr. Bob Long, and I'm going to get some ideas from him that I'm going to use back home in my own ministry. And somehow on the drive, it was three and a half hours, I thought to myself, you know, I don't want to misuse his time. I don't want to misrepresent the situation. And so by the time I got to St. Luke's, I had my mind made up that I was going to tell him no right at the beginning. And that way, if he was very busy and needed to go on to other things, I would understand. But maybe he would have time and we could talk church talk and ministry and, and I would come back with lots of ideas to use in my current appointment. But the problem was we didn't go right to his office. He starts taking me around the church and I just felt uncomfortable broaching the subject of my employment. It felt uncomfortable to talk about and so I just listened to the stories of St. Luke's. And somewhere along the line, I realized that something was right in my path that I hadn't seen before. I had driven all this way absolutely certain that I was going to tell him no. And suddenly I realized that God was saying yes. Well, it was kind of jarring to me. And so I called my husband, who I knew was absolutely uh, firm in his stance, and something had happened to him that morning as well, and he had changed his mind. Now, something had happened to both of us. And I have to tell you that as excited as I was to come to St. Luke's, all the way home I was weeping. Not because I was sad. I mean, there wasn't something dangerous in my path. There was something wonderful. In fact, Coming to St. Luke's has truly been the greatest gift for me and my family, absolutely. But there was something unsettling to me to think that I had thought that I was in tune with God. I thought I'd planned out this future according to God's will, and somewhere along the line there was a curve in the road that I hadn't expected. Sometimes in life, we can get ahead of ourselves, and, and that, that's not wrong, that's not bad, but we have to... Be ready to come back and take the curve with God. If I had been so stubborn, which is a real possibility for me, if I had been so stubborn to stick to my own plan, I would have missed out on an incredible gift in my life. Sometimes when we encounter those curves, it's uncomfortable, it's unsettling, and yet it's a time for us to... Relax and trust God for that journey because otherwise we'll miss out on a greater path. Second, it's important to remember through all of this that God is present with us. One of the fascinating things about this particular text is that what happens with Balaam and the donkey is an analogy. It mirrors what's happening with Israel. You see, Israel was still being led by Moses at this time, and they were wandering around in the wilderness. They were tired. They were hungry. 
God provided food and water, but they were still a, a disgruntled lot. They were miserable, and they came up to the border of the Amorites, the country of the Amorites, and they sent word to the king of the Amorites asking for safe passage. They asked him if we could cross through on the king's highway, which was an important trade route of the ancient Near East. And they said, we'll stay to the highway. We won't veer off for the vineyards or for the fields, and we won't even drink from your wells. In other words, they were trying to just get a shortcut to the other side of the country, and they wouldn't touch any of the resources. Not only did the king of the Amorites refuse their request, but he gathered up his entire army and went out to attack them. But the Israelites were able to conquer them, and now, where they had been willing to just pass through the country, now they owned all the fields and vineyards and wells. And the king of Moab heard about it. And now they were camping out near his country, and he didn't like it. And so this whole story is about the king of Moab plotting to get rid of the Israelites. And they're not a part of it. He is going to do anything, even sorcery, to get rid of these people. He wants to wipe them off the face of the planet. And so he's going to Balaam to try to use trickery and magic and sorcery to get rid of them. And Israel doesn't know anything about what's going on. Now, can you imagine them first hearing this story and realizing that somebody was wanting to destroy them and they never knew it? Somebody had taken out a hit on them and they were blind to it? That something so dangerous was right in their path and they never saw it coming? That's what happens to Balaam. Balaam never saw the danger right in front of him. If he had only trusted the donkey who had always been loyal and faithful to him, he never would have needed to see the angel because he could have trusted the one who had been so good to him. The truth is that we don't always need to see what's right in front of us because God is with us. We can trust God to guide us through those moments. Maya Peters was just three years old when she was diagnosed with congenital bilateral parasylvian syndrome. It's a very rare syndrome that affects only two to 300 uh, people throughout the world. And it affects the oral motor functions, making it very difficult to speak and to eat. And this little girl had this and it started to make her more and more withdrawn. She couldn't communicate very well and, and she was self-conscious about that, and so she was clinging to her mother. She was timid. Her speech pathologist, when she was just four years old, recommended to her family that they get a dog to help kind of draw her out of her shell. The only problem was that Maya was not a dog person. She was scared of them. She was so timid and afraid, and so this family took an entire year to find the right dog for Maya. They kept going back to the local animal shelter, willing to take whatever time was necessary to find the perfect dog. And so they went back and back. And one particular occasion, they were there when a police officer brings in this white, scraggly dog named Jack. It seems that somebody had thrown Jack in a dumpster to get rid of him for him to die, and the officer rescued him. He brought him to the animal shelter to have him be cleaned up and hopefully adopted by some family. And while they were there, he brought him in. 
When he brought him in, this dog was filthy. He was covered with fleas. His fur was all matted down, and yet something about this dog caught the attention of Maya's mother. She couldn't get this dog out of her head, and a couple days later, they came back to the shelter to look again, and the mother was talking with the shelter staff while Maya and her big sister went to go look at the dogs. Now, Maya never went close to the cages. She was too scared for that but she was drawn to this white dog. And she came up close to it and she put out her hand for the dog to lick her and then she started talking. Hi, I'm Maya, you're cute. And the mother said, I heard her talk more to that dog than I'd ever heard her speak before. Needless to say, Jack went home with them that day and became a part of their family. He was great for Maya. She started really progressing in her, in her therapy She became uh, far more confident and started relating more to people. Three years later, after they had taken Jack home and he had become such a part of their family, her parents were awakened in the middle of the night by the sound of scratching, and Jack was barking and whining at their door. They ran to Maya's bedroom, and they found that she was in the middle of a seizure. She had never had one before. She was having terrible convulsions, and she was already turning blue. They were able to call and receive medical help in time, and she uh, was able to recover completely. But over the next few years, Maya would have over 100 different seizures, and Jack would alert the family in advance. Something about this dog could sense what was invisible to everyone else, and he could alert them to this coming seizure, and it would help protect her and help break her fall. He would be there with her in the midst of a seizure that she would have. He would lay his head on her chest to kind of help comfort her, and it regulated her breathing. Now, for the past three years, Maya has been seizure-free. She's gone on to compete in her first dance competition, and Jack is still a wonderful part of their family, and they recognize that he truly was a gift from God. This dog that had been saved from death has now saved Maya countless times. And they have learned to really trust the insight of this little dog to see the things that they can't. In life, if we will trust the presence of God for us, it's okay that we don't know every single thing that's right in front of us. Because God is with us. There will be times that it seems that we skirt danger and loss and pain and and we can celebrate those moments with God. And then there are times that all of us will encounter grief and tragedy and loss. And we know in those moments, God is there to carry us through and get us to the other side. God is always working for our good and is faithful to be with us. And third, The horizon is never empty. If we could miraculously talk to an angel today and ask an angel questions, I have a feeling that many of us would ask about heaven. Heaven is kind of that great unknown that's before us, and it can kind of loom large on the horizon and either seem very scary or very empty, as if it's not really real. It's like standing at the edge of the ocean and just seeing this huge body of water and not realizing how alive it truly is. 
when my husband and I went on our honeymoon, we went to Cancun and, and we went snorkeling. I had never done that. I'd never been snorkeling. And I was concerned about wearing my contacts. I didn't want to lose them, so I took them out. But I have very bad eyesight. And so without my contacts, I just kind of see shadows and blobs. And when we jumped off the boat, and I was practicing for a while, and we were out away, and all of a sudden, this large school of fish started swimming toward us. Except I didn't see the fish. I saw this large, dark mass coming right for us. Now, the boat was too far away, and so I climbed on the nearest thing to get out of the water, which happened to be my husband. <laughs> I scrambled up on top of his shoulders before he ever realized what was happening. A couple of years ago, we had the opportunity and blessing to go back snorkeling again, and my husband strongly encouraged me to wear my contacts. And I remember my very first thought in the water. Oh my goodness, this is so much better when you can see. Everything was opened up. No longer was there these dark masses of death coming toward me, but rather I saw all the life that was present, all the beauty, all the colors. It was incredible. Sometimes we can stand at the shoreline and see nothing out there until we have the eyes to see. You may have seen the news story about Fabian Cousteau. He is in the midst of a world record research project where he's living underwater for a month, conducting research off the coast of Florida. You can go online and check out his mission. It's Mission 31. And there are webcams and everything. But none of this that he's doing now would be possible had it not been for the vision and research of his grandfather, Jacques Cousteau. Now, Jacques Cousteau had, was a world-renowned oceanographer, but he grew up kind of as an unlikely candidate for that. He grew up in the midst of France to a family that was very content with the land. The only reason that Jacques Cousteau started in the water was because he was a sickly child and they had him start swimming to build up his exercise and strengthen his lungs, and he fell in love with the sea. And everything that was alive as part of the ocean, he started to develop the aqua lung, and he opened up scuba diving for the world. He started filming movies under the sea, and so what became the, the depths of the sea that we would normally associate with dark, foreboding danger became places of life, and we could see all these new creatures. A world had been opened up to us. Sometimes, in those very far-reaching mysteries, we just need the eyes to see. But we can trust that even in those moments, God will be with us. There's a famous author, Frederick Beekner, and I want to read to you how he describes the story of Balaam. In the book of Numbers, Balaam's donkey sees an angel of the Lord barring the way with a drawn sword in his hand, and thereupon lies down in the middle of the road with Balaam still on his back. When Balaam clobbers him over the head with a stick, the donkey speaks out reproachfully in fluent Hebrew, and then Balaam sees the angel too. This is perhaps a clue to the mystery. Whereas men, as a rule, see only what they expect to see and little more, 
the animals, innocent of expectation, see what is there. The next time the old mare looks up from her browsing and lets fly with an exultant whinny at the empty horizon, we might do well to consider at least the possibility that the horizon may not be quite as empty as we think. We may not be able to see what is ahead, but the horizon is not empty. We might not know what's yet to come in our lives, but the horizon is not empty. If we will trust the goodness of God in our lives, the faithfulness and the loyalty, the fact that God has always worked for our good and has been faithful to us from our present in our present moment and through the future, we can trust that God will fill our horizon. It's in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers.